When we talk about God, uh, one of the things I've, I've mentioned is that we have to be careful. We, we speak provisionally about God. God is bigger. God is more wonderful. God is more amazing than we are able to uh, articulate. Our words don't quite capture who God is. I've said that before. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is the Christian confession that God is triune. God is three persons and yet one God. Um, God is Father, Son, Spirit, and yet all Yahweh. Nevertheless, it's important for us to think a little bit about uh, the Trinity because uh, the, the Trinity and the way that God uh, lives in God's divine self, the way God exists, has implications for us because we too will share in that life, in the life to come. And so it, it behooves us to, to think a little bit about it and to try and, and imagine in some ways what it must be like to be God. And of course, we tread carefully. We're not, I, we can't get there, but to, to, to come up with images can be helpful. And so... I would like you to think a little bit about what it must be like for the Father and the Son and the Spirit to be in eternal communion. Their love passing from one to the next in an eternal flow, uh, some theologians call it a dance, where, where God, God loves, the Father loves the Son. The Son reciprocates that love, but reciprocates not quite right, because the Son loved the Father before the Father loved the Son. Crazy. To imagine this kind of, uh, theologians call it perichoresis, this, this interpenetration of love that bonds, that binds the, the God together. In fact, uh, St. Augustine uh, once called the Holy Spirit the bond of love. So that in the act of the Father loving the Son, that love itself is the Spirit. So th- you must imagine, this must be very, very strange for God. When God who exists in this, this circle, this dance of, of passionate, fierce, relentless love, when that God encounters us, what a disappointment. What a horrible, horrible disappointment that must be. Now imagine what it's like for us when we receive this love from God. You guys remember uh, UHF, the classic 1980s com- comedy starring, uh, Scott, you know, Weird Al Yankovic, right? Um, and uh, Kramer from Seinfeld, before he was a little more famous, he was Stanley Spadowski. You remember this movie? Anybody? Okay, like four of you. Great. Well, it... <laughs> We'll put it this way. When I was in the fifth grade, uh, my good friend Evan Lewer, who helped us put on the, uh, the parent conference, my good friend Evan Lewer, uh, we had, we had a, a sleepover at his house. And, and of course, when you do a sleepover, there's no sleeping involved. It's just uh, you get to the point where you're delirious, delirious from lack of sleep. And so around 3.45 or 4 a.m., uh, UHF was put on, on the VHF, VHS. And when I was in the fifth grade at, four, at 3.45, 4 uh, a.m. in the morning, nothing in the world could have been funnier than this movie. I, I, I dread what it must be like to watch it again. I think I would be terribly disappointed. But at the time, it, it blew my mind. Anyway, there's this scene where um, Stanley Spadowski, he's the janitor uh, of, the, of the TV station, and they give him his own show. Right? And Stanley Spadowski, he, uh, part of the, one of the things he does in his show is he, he has a, a contest. And so there's some kids playing this contest. They're trying to find something in like a bowl of oatmeal or something. And, 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 and the, the, the prize is if you find it, you get to drink from the fire hose. No? Again, in the fifth grade, this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. So this one kid, he finds the thing and he's going to get the fire hose boy. So he's on, uh, I think he's on like a rocking horse. He has a cowboy. This is the bizarre film. And uh, they put the fire hose right in front of his face. And, and then they just, just crank it. Just blow him right off the core. I, I was, my sides were splitting. 
the la- I couldn't contain my, my mer- Nothing in the world was funnier. But that's sort of what it's like when God lavishes this eternal love on us. It's like we're sitting there, we're waiting, and, and we open our mouths like, yes! And then kaboom, we're blown right away. We're blown right off the horse. It's as if we're taking a drink from the divine, loving fire hose. The funny thing about human beings is that, imagine this kid, you know, he's just been completely blown off the horse. He's, ah, he's soaked head to toe, the divine fire hose. But you know something? You give him a few hours, right? You give him a few hours, he kind of dries off, Right? And pretty soon, a couple days later, he doesn't even remember it happened. He's like, he's like, ah, you know, you can talk about the fire hose. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that, that instant, that first moment when you're just bowled over by the fire hose, all you can think about is, wow, that was incredible. Or possibly really painful. I don't, I don't know. But, but all you can think about is that experience, right? And the same thing happens when this triune God, who is love itself, lavishes this love on us. We experience it in different ways. But I, I, I suggest to you that most of you here have in some way or another been bowled over at one time or another by God's loving salvation. I talk about a personal experience I had a couple, well, year and a year and a half ago. Maybe, I, I, time is blurry now, but I remember uh, there was a, a time in, in our marriage with Aaron and I, uh, we're, we're just, we, we couldn't afford health insurance which is a, a big deal right now, but it was a big deal to us at that time. And we were actually putting our health insurance on a credit card so that we would be covered, um, so that the kids would have insurance. We were so tight. Uh, anxiety, for those of you who've experienced economic distress, you know what it's like. Where you're just wondering, how long are we going to be able to hang on? And, 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 and when's this going to end? And then one day, out of the blue, Aaron gets an email from Capo Unified School District saying, hey, please apply for this job. And I don't remember the number of applicants, but there was well over 300 applicants for this job. She gets the interview. She gets the job. Suddenly, when we were, we were, we were about to fall off, and we got saved. We got rescued. I can't tell you the experience, the, the feeling. I had been praying day in and day out, that God would provide some way for us to be rescued. For some of you, maybe it's that time when you first realized just how gracious God's grace is. Maybe you'd been the sort of person who was trying to, to please God, trying to do the right sort of thing, and, and, and you always felt like you never quite measured up, and then you heard the gospel of grace, that God loves you so much and loves us so much that he just... He's, lavishes it on you. And that first moment when you realize it's, it's free, absolutely, completely, utterly, unendingly free, that weight that lifted off your shoulders. Maybe for some of you, it's when, that first moment when you realized that you were forgiven, that you too were covered by the blood of the Lamb. The things that you'd done, the people that you'd hurt, the ways that you'd failed, that was in the past, and that God had redeemed you and given you new hope. That moment where the, the, the fire hose, the love, the divine love of God just poured over you, and you could think of nothing other than the way that you'd been rescued, bailed out.
What a disappointment for God. To treat us this way. And then, after a day, or a month, or a year, or 20 years, or whenever, at some point, the, the feeling wears off. The honeymoon is over. The, what is it? The bloom is off the rose. What a disappointment that must be for the triune God who only knows love itself to encounter a people that cannot hold to their first love. What God does is he, he reminds them every once in a while. We have in the scriptures a couple of places where he reminds them. Let's look in, the, um, in your note sheets. Not really note sheets again, just, just text. But uh, there's a couple places in Deuteronomy and then again in Ezekiel where, where God, he, he's, he's just, he's sort of looking at his people and he's thinking, really? Let me tell you something about who you are. Because what we, we, we get to this point where it's like, it's like the, the bloom's off the rose and we start to think, you know, it's, it's me. I, I did this, right? I'm, I'm the reason that things are good. I've figured it out. I've got this. I've done whatever. And God says this, uh, Deuteronomy 7, The Lord, Yahweh, did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all people. But because Yahweh loves you and because he would keep the oath he swore to your fathers, he's brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Later in chapter 9, don't think in your heart after Yahweh your God has cast them out before you. This is talking about when the people come into the land of Israel, God's going to just clear the way for them. And, and we remember the story, say, of, for example, uh, the walls of Jericho. God just knocks them down. We've talked a little bit about that uh, with Neil in the last couple weeks. God just, just takes care of it for the people. But don't think after that happens that it's because of my righteousness, my good standing, my stuff that I did that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations that God's driving them out. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. because of the wickedness of these nations. Down to verse 6. Therefore, understand the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. Because you're a stiff-necked people. Remember. It's good that there's an exclamation point there. Remember. Think back to the way it was before you got bailed out. We're always forgetting. Divine fire hose opens up and blows us away. And then at a certain point, we've, it's just not present to us anymore. Because we're people, hot in time. Things fade. The memories, well, in Perry's case, I don't think Perry can even remember probably the first half of his life. He's so old. Hey, look at that guy. Yeah, memory is it's untrustworthy. It goes away. It's so hard to get right back to that moment when we first felt it. This is in Ezekiel 16. Uh, if you want to look in your pew Bibles, you can. I didn't uh, put it on your, your sheet. Um, Ezekiel 16, 1-14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord to, to, to Jerusalem. Listen to what he said. Your birth 
from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. We should hear that as being like, you have, um, you have, no, you have no good birth to speak of. Right? And on the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You weren't washed in water. You weren't rubbed with salt, wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. You were thrown out into an open field. You were loathed on the day you were born. Israel, before, before I showed up, you were just, just tossed out. You were a nothing, a nobody. You were worthless. You were ugly. You were small. You were unwanted. That's who you are, Israel. But then watch what happens when I came by. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, live. Yeah, I said to you in your blood, live. Made you thrive like a plant in the fields. You grew, you matured, became very beautiful. When I passed by you again and looked on you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. This is maybe a way of of saying that they become betrothed. God marries this, this outcast. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. God will go on in, in verses 9 to 14 to talk about all the wonderful things that happens. He adorns Israel with all these things, makes her powerful, makes her, makes her famous in all the world. But don't forget, Israel, why do you keep forgetting who you were? You were a child exposed, left for dead. And I saw you, because this is who God is. God's compassionate love is just endless within God's being. God sees this, this, this struggling child and just, just lavishes love on it. Just lavishes his love on her and turns her into something beautiful. Which I suggest to you is our story as well. That we were in a place where we were lost in some way, where we needed to be found in some way, where we were And God saw us struggling. God saw Tom and Aaron putting the health insurance on the credit card. Still paying that off, by the way. Probably for a few more years. But God saw that and rescued us. God saw you struggling under the burden of your sin. He rescued you. God saw you wallowing in guilt. He forgave you. So I read Ezekiel 16, right? You know, there's the little, the, the ugly girl, and then God comes along and just, poof, turns her into something really special. You, you've seen the movie that they made out of this. Cinderella? 1950, Disney film? Um, again, I, I, I watched it recently. Uh, just like UHF, terrible disappointment uh, when, you, when you see it again. Pretty much the entire movie is a bunch of m- mice like singing songs. Uh, and, and what's so strange, no one likes mice. The only, the only person that I, that I know of are people who are really excited about mice, probably Steph and Katie. Uh, Steph, Steph and Katie, they're the kind of people who would like, oh, you're so cute, I'm going to put a, a shirt on you and a hat because they're dirty and Steph and Katie are weird people. 
Cinderella, for whatever, you know, she's, she, she's a scullery maid, and she's destined for great things. Uh, you know that her heart is so good because the, the birds and the, and the, and the bunnies uh, dress her and help her with her chores. That's how you can tell that her, she has good character. Um, yeah, the actual, like, interesting part of the film, the actual plot part, doesn't take place until, like, the last 15 minutes. I'm just sitting there being like, come on, let's, let's get to the ball. Okay, so she's got this terrible situation. Uh, her, her stepsisters are, are mean to her, um, probably because they're jealous. She's pretty, they're not. Um, her stepmother is mean to her uh, because, I don't know, some, someone's got to be a mean stepmom, I guess, and that's her. And so she's uh, super mean to Cinderella, and, and we're just like, man, when's it going to turn around for this girl? You know? And then, bam, fairy godmother shows up. I gotta hand it to uh, Disney. That song, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, it's pretty decent. It like, it's is it top ten Disney songs of all time? No, but it's definitely decent. It's it's watchable. All right, Fairy Godmother shows up, poof, gives her a shot. She goes to the ball. Of course, uh, the the prince guy like he's like all the girls are there. He's like, oh, that one's the one I like. And so he gets her a glass slipper. Uh, there's some drama. Is he going to find her? Of course he does. In the end, she is happily ever after. Married. A princess. Right? Starts out as the scullery maid. Ends up princess of the kingdom. Lives happily ever after. Yeah, I think the last scene in the Disney movie is they're in like a coach. You know, with a just married thing and some cans. And they're driving off onto their honeymoon. Right? And so you leave and you're like, ah, oh, that's great. I feel so good about the world. I mean, it's a good thing the movie ends there. Because, really, happily ever after, we know that doesn't happen. No, you, you wait, you just, just wait a couple months, suddenly, um, you know, prin, Prince, is it Prince Charming? Is that Cinderella? Okay, well, whatever. Prince Charming, Prince Albert, I don't know. He, he, he's, like, he's like, gosh, you know. I wish that you'd have a little bit better manners. Okay, I, I get it, you were a scullery maid, but it's kind of embarrassing. They have a little spat about that, right? Even worse. A couple months down the line, she's, she's kind of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the queen now, I'm running the show. And she starts to think, man, my sisters were awful. They're really, really bad people. They should be punished for the way they treated me. Suddenly, you know, the guards come to her old family's house, maybe knock down the door, you know, kick them out, right? Because, well, they deserve it, okay? They, they were awful, right? You know, maybe she, maybe, or if maybe she's really a good person, you know, the animals love her. Maybe her husband finds out about what happened to her, and so maybe he takes things into his own hand, and suddenly really bad stuff starts to happen, right? Because people, you know, you forget. You, you, you lose contact with that, that first moment where the glass slipper fits and you're holding hands. Not in our marriage. We're, uh, Aaron and I still in the honeymoon phase, uh, almost five years in. It, every day it's, um, well, every day it's just like the end of Cinderella. Uh, at least for me, maybe not so much for her. Well, if you read on in Ezekiel 16, you find out that the Cinderella story ends that way. God does all this stuff. He, he, he finds her, you know, almost fairy godmother-like, gets her to the ball, prettys her up, sets her high, and, and, and gives her all these wonderful clothes. And, da, da, da. and what does she end up doing? She's like, she starts thinking, you know what? I am really good looking. 
I'm the reason this thing worked out. And then she's kind of bored with God a little bit, so she starts looking around. She's like, oh, he's cute. Cool boy, right? Get over here. She starts, she, she, she loses contact with that first experience of the fire hose of divine love that just takes her from where she was and where she's going. So if you'd stand, let's uh, read our text for today. That was the intro. Now we're going to do the sermon. Nothing? No? I'm kidding. All right, stand up. Yeah, stand up. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Noble, like noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You may be seated. Paul is confronted with the people. Paul is soaked in the scriptures. He knows Israel's story in and out. And he sees what's happening at this church in Corinth. And he's thinking, oh no, not again. A couple notes on the text. That, that not many, not many, not many, it just it jumps out you. Uh, not many wise, not many who are strong, not many who are noble birth. The implication, of course, is that some people in this church were, uh, what, Intellectual, uh, mighty might mean powerful, influential, right? Had some social standing. Um, noble, you know, there's a couple people here who were of noble birth. They were high, high class people. But for the vast majority, not many of you were like that. Not many. And this is in the past tense, right? This is, this is not that, uh, that you're still stupid, foolish, uh, not influential, weak, uh, not noble. That, that's all past tense. Something's changed. These people who, in the eyes of the world, just weren't that much, they've come into this church, they've become a part of this community, and suddenly, the people who, who didn't have wisdom, suddenly have a kind of wisdom. They've perhaps learned the wisdom of God, and are able to speak it. We find out later in 1 Corinthians that they're, they're probably prophesying. They're, they're giving words uh, from the Lord. They're hearing things from God, and, and blessing the people, or not blessing the people with it, Paul gets a little upset at them for the way that they, they handle this. There's people who, outside these walls, when you go out into the world, they're nothing. They don't have any power, no social status, no influence. They don't have any social cachet. They're, they're nobodies. They're, 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 they're. But in this place, they become what? Deacons, elders. They become respected. They, they suddenly have, their word carries something because they, they care for the flock. They suddenly have a kind of status. They weren't noble outside. They weren't born into the right house. 
But they've been born again into God's house. And now they are the sons and daughters of God too. They've been given noble birth. They started out over here like a bunch of scullery maids. And then the fire hose of divine love blows them away and gives them everything, things they they never could have imagined in this place, in the church. Well, this is shameful to some folks. In the, what, verse 27, right? Chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things, the uninfluential, the non-social status things of the world to shame the powerful, the influential, the mighty. See, there's everybody else is looking outside, looking into the church, and they're like, man, what is going on there? This is unreal. People look outside into our community, and this happens for me a lot of times with one of my, uh, my brother-in-law. He, he, he just, he finds, he finds church endlessly fascinating because it doesn't abide by any of the rules of the world, right? In the world, it's what? It's, you know, you get a good job, you make a lot of money, that will attract, you know, the right kind of girl, and then you get a lot of stuff and people respect you, and that's pretty much it. That's how the world works. He finds it just fascinating to see that, you know, Aaron and I are part of a community where that's all upside down. The people that we find the most, uh, what, influential, powerful, those are the people who live holy lives. And it doesn't really matter whether or not they've, what, got all the money and all the cars and the status. What, what matters to us is that they, 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 they live and they love and serve God, right? This is, he just, he's like, man, I, I don't get this. It's just, that's strange. It's, in, in a way, I think it shames him a little bit to see that there's an alternate way of doing life. Uh, I've bolded uh, bring to nothing there in verse 28. This is just a textual note from when you're reading 1 Corinthians. Uh, the Greek behind that word is katargeo, and it, it really it can mean a lot of things. It can mean like destroy, abolish, um, but I like that translation, bring to nothing or reduce. And the reason it's important, throughout 1 Corinthians, you're going to hear Paul say a lot of, you know, in our English translations, we'll get him saying things like destroy or um, in 13.10, the, uh, the perfect has, when the perfect has come, that which is in part, the, the, this is 1 Corinthians 13, when we know in part, when that, that, will, that will be done away with. That done away with is uh, the same word, katargeo. And that's important because what Paul's establishing is he saying this church is an upside-down place. Uh, you can think of katargeo in, in Paul's usage in 1 Corinthians as kind of like a flipping upside-down. Stuff that should be great gets destroyed, right? The, all the things that the world thinks are important, those are just pushed down, abolished, annihilated. And the reason for this is that so no flesh should glory in his presence. Well, Paul... He sees the cycle repeating again. These people, these Cinderellas, fire hose of divine love comes and sets them up and gives them uh, wisdom and gives them influence and, and, and gives them a, a new birth, a noble birth. And now they're beginning to do what Israel has always done. They're forgetting. 
They're starting to take these things, and they're starting to use them to self-aggrandize, to make them better, to push other people down. They're forgetting that they were just tossed out on the side of the road, left to bleed to death, and that God came in and saved them. They're forgetting it. And Paul's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. We know this feeling uh, that Paul has when we watch, um, well, a lot of movies. Uh, I was thinking when I was thinking about this, I personally, be, I read The Great Expectations by Charles Dickens when I was a uh, young, young man, younger. Uh, you know the story, Pip, he's, uh, he's an orphan, he's six years old, and uh, he comes into a Great Expectations. So he has a benefactor, a donor, who's, who's making him like a young gentleman. And he thinks that this benefactor is Miss Havisham. She's this, uh, this old uh, widow, right? And, and she has an adopted daughter named Estella. Uh, and Estella is um, frigidly beautiful. She's kind of like the ice queen. And, and Pip, you know, he sees her and he just, oh, six years old, he just falls madly in love. So he goes and, and he's always vying for her affection. He's just trying to, to, to break in. And even and, and just the slightest attention that she might pay to him, like oh, just a smile or a laugh, just melts him all over again. And he's caught in this cycle of, of how can I win this love? I need it. And so he goes back and back and back. And, and you're watching him. As Dickens tells us, tale, you, you watch him go from 6 years old to 18 years old to 20 years old to 25 years old. You see, all his life, he does the same thing over and over and over. And you just want to shake Pip and be like, no! She's not going to change, man. Break the cycle. Maybe you've experienced something like that when you were young and in love. It was unrequited. And you just, you, just, you just chase after it again and again and again and just never, never, never. Paul sees the pattern. He knows what's happening to this church. The same thing that Israel did time and again is happening all over. Someone who got saved, who got rescued, who had no hope, who was given everything, bowled over by the ferocious, relentless, gracious love of God, set up in a high place, and turns around, forgets how she got there, and then begins using that position to make herself look good. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. This way that Jesus does things, that's real wisdom, not the way the world does things. And notice that the way Jesus does things doesn't glorify himself. In fact, whatever Jesus does something, the glory goes immediately to God. God glorifies the Son that the Son might glorify the Father in return. The Son's glory is the glory of the Father. It's the Trinity again. It's this circle. It's this dance where it's passed from one to the other and never held, never taken, always given. But you put a human being in that place and we try to grab it. We try to take it. Make it for us. And Paul says, no, no, no. Jesus became for us the wisdom from God. He became our righteousness. He became our sanctification, our, our move to, ho- to holiness. 
He became our redemption, taking us out from the slavery of sin into a new life of freedom in Christ. And the reason is so that it is, as it is written, he who boasts or he who glories, let him glory or boast in the Lord. For the last, uh, well, okay, since Neil came back, by the way, Neil sends his regards. He's in Northern California. He's at the wedding of his sister. It, uh, Neil got deathly ill. The whole family did last week. That's why they weren't at Thanksgiving, um, Thanksgiving feast, because they were all vomiting. Um, he, he, he said to me that on actual Thanksgiving, Thursday, that he was able to get some mashed potatoes down. So, great. Um, he, they, apparently, they were going up north. They had been driving for six hours, the family, and then they turned around because his dad was like, yeah, we don't want you guys here. You're going to get us all sick, ruin the wedding. Thanks, Dad. I, Neil, I mean, I don't know what's going on in that family. That's a little bit weird. Anyway, uh, so they, they, went, they came back, um, but then uh, Dad has a change of heart, and he flew Neil up yesterday uh, to Oakland, rent a car, go to the... All very complicated. But Neil, uh, for the, ever since he came back from his sabbatical, what he's been um, sharing is two basic things. The first is, don't know so much about God. Instead, know God. Right? Instead of being able to rattle off all the theological what? Instead of that, instead, just be able to sit and experience who God is. Experience his love, his grace washing over us. That's been one thing. The second thing is, expand the guest list. I heard Hank, Hank uh, tallied, and last week, I, I was in Baltimore, but, but Hank said that we had 205 people at our Thanksgiving feast. That's awesome. That's expanding the guest list. That's, that's going out there, inviting people, and bringing them in. That's, uh, that's saying, hey, you know what? Uh, this isn't just a, a club for us. This is an expansive time. It's time to, to, to find other people and bring them home, right? Let, let me get to the real home, which is here in the church, in the love of Christ. If you follow in 1 Corinthians and you see Paul's uh, argument over and over and over about boasting, about um, uh, bringing yourself down, he, he, he keeps coming back to this, this idea that what we're supposed to look like to the world is this totally radical, upside-down, uh, very strange ecosystem where the way that Jesus lives is modeled here, and we become... Uh, a, a, Strange, bizarre to the world. And we, we started to bring more people in. And these are the people that were just like us, you know, tossed out, ready to bleed to death uh, in the field. And then in this community, God, uh, the gospel re-energizes, uh, enlivens them. And then God uses God's uh, power in, in this community to bring these people to a place where they too share in the same kind of blessing and lifting up and raising up that we've experienced. And then everyone watches that happen. And what do they do? They say, God truly is glorious that he does these things. Stop this, you know, me, 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 me. Instead, repeat the cycle, break the cycle of me, 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 and start a new cycle. The new cycle is bring in more folks. Bring in these ones who are just kind of, they, they don't have a shot. They're not, they're nothing to speak of in the world. And, and imagine what happens when the gospel penetrates their hearts, when they realize who they are in God, 
in Christ. When, the, when Christ becomes their wisdom and their, as you say, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When those things happen, they too will be lifted up. And then God will be glorified again. What that means for us here at Coast now, 2013, almost 14, as we enter into the season of Advent, as we enter into the time where we receive again the coming of the Son, is that we have another opportunity, another chance to expand the guest list and to see God do what God does and bring up, make a choice that this generation, we don't, we don't do what Israel did. We don't do what the Corinthians were doing. Instead, we break the cycle and the power of the Spirit and we say, no, no, instead of it being about me, instead it's going to be about these folks who are still down and out and cast and broken and lost. It's going to be about them. And we're going to see God lift them up And as he does it, we're going to marvel at who this God is. The same God who brought the the children of Israel out of slavery. The same God who sends his son, who in crucifixion becomes God's glory. That same God is going to lift them up. And we're going to get to see it. We're going to get to have our faith strengthened. And we're going to get to celebrate as these new members of our family will be with us forever in the kingdom. In order to break the cycle... We, at Coast, are expanding the guest list. So, Steph, I want your assistant to come to church. You're on that, right? Okay, awesome, great. We're expanding the guest list. She's coming, and and, and, and the people that you know in your communities, in your lives, who are down and out, who, who are lost, who don't know, bring them in, bring them in, bring them in, and let's see what God does to them in their lives. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at the love that you have lavished on us, that you have poured over us, the way that you've rescued us from sin, from darkness, from physical, spiritual, economic, every kind of uncertainty and every kind of trap. God, you've liberated us. You have come and you have set us free and set us up in wonderful places. Though we were not wise in the world's eyes, though we had no influence, though we had no noble birth, God, you've given that all of that to us in this place, in this church, through the power of the Spirit in the coming of your Son. God, let us break the cycle. Let us not be the generation of Israel that, that just took it for themselves. Let us not be the Corinthian church. Instead, God, let us be your church, your people expanding the guest list, seeing you, God, raise new people up, lifting them up out of, where out of their darkness into your marvelous light. God, please let us be that people. God, let us be your glory, just as your son is your glory. God, let your glorification of us just rebound and turn around into your glory. How we ask these things in this season of Advent, in the name of your Son, who is with us, who loved us, who died for us, and makes our hope possible. Amen.